0: Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, Really interesting guys. I I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, And it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they're very much in alignment with uh, the values of the podcast. Uh, As you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, Holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of, like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're they're part of uh, what I consider, uh, for myself, uh, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often, when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom, you may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you are not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms so it's 100% mushrooms organic so you know you're getting a really good uh product, you're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself 100% of that um, and again, just really great guys I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com um, and also listeners of this show uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll, you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. On this episode of the podcast, I sat down with Dmitri Alexiev. Uh, Dimitri is a scientist uh, who specializes in the gut microbiome, <clears throat> so it was really interesting to sit down and talk to him. It's a subject I've been wanting to delve into for a while in this podcast. Uh, it's something that I find very fascinating, and especially working with plants and natural medicine. Uh, it, it's really a big part of this work. Um, uh, very much in the scientific way, but also in the philosophical way, uh, even in the spiritual way, the cosmovision, which we, we talked about a, a bit in this podcast, uh, this idea that we have other life forms within us that are affecting us, that are affecting our health, that are affecting our, our mood, um, and, and even our intelligence. So, we got into some really interesting topics all about the, the gut microbiome, uh, what are microbes, uh, kind of the history um, in, the, in the Western world, how those kind of relate to certain indigenous cosmovisions as well, um, how plants affect that, uh, especially working with some power plants, how that can relate to that, uh, a lot of the science of the, the gut microbiome, uh, what's being uh, discovered and, and talked about, um, and, and how it's really um, an emerging. Emerging field that's that's I, I think a really important part of science and just humanity and, and health and well-being um, and, and also really getting to this uh, idea of, of what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be conscious so uh, it was a, a really beautiful conversation we I think we went three hours which again for me is always a, a sign of a, a really good conversation so I hope you all enjoy this podcast uh, as always if you're able to support this podcast that's a really big help to me Patreon is a really good option. It's a website. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, You can sign up for different tiers, and those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. So if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, uh, that's a really uh, beautiful way to to practice this idea of reciprocity, of giving back, and then also uh, getting certain things back from doing that as well. To all the patrons, to all the people who are supporting via Patreon, as always, thank you very much for your support. Uh, it, It really means a lot, and it's really, what allows me to continue making these, these episodes. Um, if you're not able to do that, As always, helping with the algorithms is a really big help, so if you're viewing this on YouTube or or Rumble, um, uh, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comments section, Uh, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, following the show, um, and leaving a starred rating, and also on Apple Podcasts, a short review, that's a really big help. So I think that's it, and without further ado, here is my conversation. With Dimitri not from the maze, running up from the maze, running out of the maze today Running up from the maze, running up from the maze, running up from the maze to die. I'm running up from the maze, am running up from the maze, running out of the maze to die. We were talking a little bit before we started, but a big part of this podcast is is working with plants and 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 nutrition and and life and and consciousness. And, uh, I've actually never had someone on this podcast to talk about this subject, <clears throat> which is interesting because, because we were speaking. I mean, I, I think I'm 120 some episodes in now. Uh, so this is a long time overdue because I, I think your work is actually really, uh, vital to our understanding of, of, of us as humans, of, of life, of, of what we put into our body, of how our body works. So maybe just to start, uh, you can tell the audience a, a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, where you're from, and 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 what the work that you do is, and and how you got interested in in this kind of work.
1: <clears> Thanks, <throat> everyone. Really, really nice uh, that you're having me on the podcast. I'm I'm like a real hardcore scientist, so this means I've been working on like very standard labs where people wear lab coats and stuff and I've been a scientist for 20 years now. My main focus was all kinds of microbial stuff, so it's mainly bacteria. And in this area, microbiome has been a buzzword for almost like 15 to 20 years now. And well, I would would say that me personally, I was always uh, interested in the phenomena of consciousness, and I uh, and it somehow it, it got together with my science career. I was a lot into Buddhism and meditation, and that's where I decided it's a great thing to study how the brain is whatever it's doing, receiving, producing, transmitting consciousness. And at, at some and, and it was funny that at some point, uh, like in the lab where I was working. Uh, I came to understanding that the apparatus that I have, all of the appliances, all of the techniques, uh, they are not sophisticated enough to study the brain. And then I started to downgrade in complexity. So these were like typical organs, and then it's like also too complicated. And so we came down to bacteria, which is probably one of the most simplest like forms of life which then evolved in everything that we have now. And I got stuck with bacteria <laughs> for 20 years now. And uh, I mean, all of this, like first studying them just like single cells and then going into the consortia of these bacteria or also, also living on specific surface. So most of my scientific work was gut microbiome. And it's connection to health. And I'll, I'm sure everybody has at least heard that it's so much connected not only with digestion per se, but also with immunity. And a lot of stuff has been lately done on the mental health and gut microbiome connection. And the more deeper I got into that, the more I started to understand that like our... um. Let's say common consciousness, like the whole population consciousness, how we feel ourselves, how we express ourselves, how we communicate, is very much dependent on our health state, and that's so much connected with what's going on with with our micro world, with this microcosmos of bacteria, and probably I'm now one of those people. Who is like really preaching this idea that by understanding more about micro microbiome and microbes, we can make a better health, and then through this better health, we can we can even get like better populations or or, or better generations, also in terms of mental health, and then through these we can reach like a much higher states of consciousness like taken together and a lot of my work has been um, connected with studying kind of all types of um, cultural, historical, anthropological approaches to health and uh, really if we want to understand how our gut is supposed to work we have to find some populations who live quite far away from the supermarket. Yeah, We have to understand how people are designed to digest, to keep health, how we are designed to feed ourselves, what's the evolution behind that. So I started to be interested into indigenous people and indigenous cultures. And also through that and many other friends, who are around and uh, i realized that for example south america has a great culture of indigenous approaches to health which if we really take a kind of more scientific approach to that then we can see a lot of connection with the microbial world but then again other systems other kind of established health systems like ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine, or many others which are just much smaller. They're also like the the practical approaches to becoming healthier. They're so much connected to um, indeed how you keep the balance of microbial world inside of you and outside of you. So then again, we talked a lot, uh, we talked a bit in the beginning about the uh, traditional approaches uh in the south america and some of the medicinal plants and i believe a lot of the effects that we see on the health they're so much connected with how this is interacting on this microbe human interface so for example tobacco this is like this is one of my insights, probably from already as, as as many as 10 years ago that I realized when the, the, the traditional tobacco was used, was applied uh, to the mucus, either like upper uh, respiratory tract, or if you find a real <coughs> uh, tabaquero, like a doctor who is using tobacco as a medicine, he could even apply the liquid tobacco like onto your into your mucus of the digestive tract, and then the effects that would produce on the mucus that's exactly what's regulating the connection of the microbes inside of you with your physical body and then that's probably one of the ways to kinda. With all of these medicines, that's maybe one of the ways um, how you restart the communication pro- process between you and your bacteria. And then at a certain point, for example, I learned about techniques which are called la dietas. So that's like really using single plant for a period of time. In scientific world, we call it an intervention. So that's kind of lasting uh, intervention into human health. And normally, like in science, we would use the pharmaceutical substances in this context. But then again, if you take a plant from the wild and you try to, for example, eat it for a month, like for a 30-day, which is maybe like a a typical example of the dieta sometimes people could do that for years probably so if we look into the biochemistry of that what well, so what's happening that human is not only learning the influence of the chemical substances polyphenols inside of the of the plant of choice but it also is training his inner microbes to digest it specifically, so it's in a way every time we use the plant for inside the digestive system, the plant is just the source material, and most of the effect will be opened through the connection with the microbes, so they will be digesting it into the hundreds of Uh, bioactive substances which will be then influencing your body and it's not only the brain for consciousness and and actually sometimes it's not specifically the brain a lot of science we see now behind the plant-based medicine that it's like stepwise microbes can extract from the plant something some some of the biochemical that would go into the liver, for example, and then it will be transformed in the liver. And then this substance will activate different cells, and cells would produce something like a um, growth factor for your neurons. And then you will become like the brain will become more fluid. You can make new synapses, new connections inside the brain. So that's like neuroplasticity as the whole, which would be summoned in the beginning by the plan. And then just to maybe to finish <laughs> the, the short intro, uh, at certain point, I mean, one of the cultural things we human have is called fermentation. So this is a culture, we see the footprints of fermentation something like 7 to 10 years ten to ten thousand years ago. So people around the world they have different approaches, different ways of fermenting stuff. And probably when a when a lay person thinks about fermentation, he would think about milk or something like that. But actually people around the world they ferment everything. And if we look at the traditional medicines, again tobacco for example. That's normally fermented substance. So they would, they would, um, how do you call it? Uh, they would squeeze the leaf or put it underground, so the um, juice of the leaf would initiate the fermentation of the tobacco leaf. And unless it's happening, the plant will not have a power. So that's part of the preparation process. And I would say, I remember one of these nights, uh, I think it was in Ecuador in the jungle, uh, or maybe in Colombia, uh, they realized that a lot of this kind of tiny mythological creatures, which you would meet in different cultures, that was maybe a way of our ancestors to see the microbial world, so these little helpers, which would be everywhere in every in every episode of um, around the world, you would see uh and people think that there is some somebody unseen who does a lot of good for you. And then again spirits. Yes, the spirits probably are this unseen entities who do good and bad, yeah, and that's for example, in our European culture, that's how we thought about disease was something un- unseen that was causing diseases, and then for many cases, we realized that's that's the microbial world, but it's but these like this really kind of resonates like this understanding of unseen entities bringing certain results good and bad so for many for many cases you would find explanations and mechanics and biochemistry exactly in the microbial world so that's that's the whole field uh probably we'll be talking about today let's see where we where it where it leads us
0: yeah amazing dimitri there's a lot of stuff there i'd i'd love to to talk to you more in depth about <clears throat> maybe maybe to to go into just to kind of start <clears throat> um before we started you you mentioned you 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 kind of gave a on another interview a kind of a a history of 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 the microbiome, of microbes, of bacteria. You said it turned into almost two hours, so so maybe we won't try and go that long. But and I know it's a big question, but I, I think these are terms that a lot of people are familiar with. They they've heard of. They, they they have some understanding of that. But could you speak a little bit about whether it's 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 the more kind of standardized standardized history or or maybe even a history that that you have some intuitive sense into based on your work but 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 what are microbes what are bacteria what are viruses what are what are parasites and 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 how did these things form and and how did they begin to form this relationship with humans because it's something that I think even fifty years ago uh, most of humanity or at least maybe in the kind of quote unquote western world. People weren't so familiar with this idea that, that even humanity is comprised of, of billions, if not trillions, of, of bacteria, of microbes that, that actually affect us. Like We're, we're not just purely human. We're, we, we have this symbiotic relationship with, with this kind of unseen world.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things I do regularly is I um, talk to kids. Like in different settings, and I have a few books for the kids. I'm just like about the natural history. What's the digestion? What are microbes? How brain is working? And one of things that I see is working for them is explaining. Like we have this picture of the clock, which is like just like twelve hours uh, scale. And then, uh, or, or it's, it's like it's like one hour scale. It's very that's very standard picture. And then probably after fifteen to twenty minutes, and that's existence of our planet. That's the time of the existence of our planet. Let's imagine that our planet existed for an hour, and then probably uh, around fifteen to twenty minutes into the life, our planet's first life appeared on the planet. So before that, that was like complete silence. And, I mean, we have two theories of how life could have appeared. Um, One of the theory that it was like, this was just like emerging, starting to build up complexity, the primordial soup uh, thing. Or the other theory that the life is more like extraterrestrial stuff. So, something like a small bite of life in form of bacteria or DNA arrived with a meteorite. But anyway, I mean, somewhere in the lifetime of the universe, life just appeared. As we know that. this This form of life, which is based on DNA. And then, for the next 20 minutes, these were only microbes. These guys... The bacteria, yeah, the we call them the archaea, like the primordial bacteria, the most ancient ones. They were living on the sources of heat from the internal part of the planet, and they were using some of the chemicals which are kind of really stuff that, for example, for us now would be like a poison and they were terraforming, they were transforming the planet. So quarter of life of this planet, these were only microbes, and these were the guys who actually created the atmosphere. So really the possibilities for us to live and really to produce energy in the way that we do. So inside every cell of the more complex, Uh, being on the planet there is this effects of burning yeah so we use oxygen to burn fats or to burn uh, carbohydrates so the oxygen wasn't there from the beginning this was the work of the first microbes and then these last 20 minutes this is very rapid evolution and creation of more complex and complex species. And let's say kids are really uh, kind of attracted to dinosaurs. So I tell them like dinosaurs appeared like only three minutes ago, three minutes till the end of the hour, and probably like 20 to 30 seconds till the end of the hour dinosaurs died off and for us human that's only lasts five seconds that we're on the planet and how funny it is for us to think that it's that we are part of this planet that we are able to govern anything that we are able to control anything so so this this planet is is really the microbial world and every new, uh, more sophisticated form of life, it was always developing together with microbes. So it's like, it's impossible that you have a sterile uh, environment for anything. So from the first moment baby appears, they will have the juices, of the vaginal juices of the mother which already have the microbes and these are very specific microbes prepared by vagina so the baby will be populated from the inside and from the outside by protective microbes and that's the way to survive that's the only way to survive and the same will be with the seed of a plant yeah, that's also covered in something like a shell and every plant every every leaf you can see outside you have something very green behind you so every leaf of the plant is covered with myriads of different microbes and the microbes you will have on this leaf they are also protecting the leaf because it's always about um balance yeah so if you don't have this microbial protection you will be eaten up like this matter will be just eaten up by the microbial world the one of the one of the characteristics of the microbes is that they're they are very capable of multiplying themselves, so whatever we see when a person is sick with something uh let's say pathogenic, it's either virus or infectious bacteria. It's just something out of control, which is just multiplying itself inside the cells, outside of the cells. And because it's taking a lot of the resources from the place where it lives, for example, our lungs or our intestine, the organ will be damaged. So not to, to kind of protect this, we have the long evolution of our body together with the microbes where every generation, there was a selection for the better combination of microbes and whatever our, let's say, uh, first ancestors. Probably for for us, like first, of like like all of this, you can imagine all of these myriads of dinosaurs, then small mice, and then up to the monkeys, and then from the monkeys to the humans. That's how we see it in science that every generation was selecting a better combination of human body and organs and the microbes. So they were, this connection was there from the beginning. And only when we started to really destroy this connection with the, let's say, Western diets and Western approaches to health, like antibiotics and Western approaches to food preservation, with some chemicals which destroy the microbes and all of these other stuff, so through destroying this connection, we started to see the the increase in all of these types of chronic diseases and the mental health. For example, this is the modern pandemic. It's not the virus. It's the pandemic of anxiety. Uh, it's a pandemic of depression. It's very much now attributed to loss of microbial diversity. And diversity, and I would say that if just one thing we have to kind of have as a take-home message from, from this interview, that's the diversity. And this is such a global wor- word. I mean like in Amazon, yeah, that's the place for diversity. And I, I believe you have this understanding and feeling that just living in this diversity is already a medicine. Yeah, that's that's already amazing. Yeah. And that's probably if you could imagine that's the way our internal life, our gut looked much much before uh industrial agriculture and food production appeared. Whenever we compare modern human with the indigenous people, we would see up to twice as much different microbes inside. Not just the amount of biomass, but the diversity of the microbes. And whenever we compare disease with a normal state, we would see that in the disease, the diversity is even less. And that's probably like, this is like a mat- mathematical theory of complexity. Yeah, to have a stable system, you need you need it to be diverse. If it's monotonous, then it will collapse. It's not robust. It's not like, and the diversity is a lot of different agents with different simple interactions inside and a lot of feedback loops. And stuff that's that's something like real nature is. That's what's making like a natural forest, but like again that's what's making a natural microbial community inside of us. And with all of this stuff that's like really, really like another mindset. If you have this as a value or as a just like a core of your mindset inside your health. You can do a lot of stuff, you can think of a lot different a lot of different practices that would enrich your inner world, that would enrich your community, and that other stuff. That's like really, really different modern understanding. One of the one of the examples in the in the Western world is this theory, which is called hygiene theory. So this was uh, proposed by pediatric doctors somewhere around 1999, 1998. So they were looking into the phenomena of increasing amount of allergies in children of the Western world. And they were like, wow, what's, what's the reason of it? What's, what's at the core of it? And then they realized that our habits of sanitation, of just like cleaning everything, making everything, like trying to make everything sterile, would really, um, in this age from zero to five, would really um, weaken the amount of signals, would really um, destroy this rich interaction, of the immune system with the outer world, so that would like the immune system had no signals from the outer world, because every everything was sterile, and it wasn't developing, so it's not made up we are not made up in, for living in the sterile world. We need to interact with nature so this is this is why they called it it's like like being over hygienist made us, after a few generations, made us into uh, like really, let's say, sick population. It's not only kids' allergies. Uh, I remember working a lot with uh, populations, for example, with uh, syndromes of deficit disorder, which is, again, one of the more modern pandemics. And a lot of it is probably coming from... From the food that we eat, from the food that we feed to children, and from the result of undeveloped uh, neural system, but it starts with a with uh very limited food choices, and then there are a lot of these experiments that I can quote that I can cite to show how this like really interestingly working. There are guys in Finland we realized that modern finnish kids although like you would think of finland like country which is like really integrated into nature but it's really not like people who live in the cities they're not like much into the woods <laughs> actually so they brought the boxes of the soil from the forest into the kindergartens for the summer and they allowed allowed kids to play with the dirt, whenever they were coming out to play, and then after three months they measured the result in terms of the microbiome and in terms of the immune system, and they realized that through these three months of interacting just with the normal uh, natural dirt, kids improved their microbiome and they were became much more resistant to the allergies and the immune system became stronger. So it's, it's probably like when you were asking about this, how this Western view, like this Western view is always about thinking of human as something separate from the nature. This is the whole philosophy theories, yeah, that like human is something above the nature and nature is somewhere outside of human and we have to conquer that. That's some of the typical summaries of of the Western philosophies. But it's actually not. Nature is inside of us. And we never, we try, like historically, whenever we try to fight it, whenever we try to destroy the natural principles, we just cut out the feedback loops of our body connected to nature. And through that, it's just becoming unstable. And it's again like a mathematical, and it's, it's just mathematically that's the 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 complex system where you cut a lot of the different connections, it won't be stable, and that's probably the choice for the whole humanity uh, now. Yeah, will we will we stay or will we go? A lot of people think that a lot of people like you know now say the Earth will die. And I always say the earth will not die. Maybe we as population will disappear. Maybe current diversity of species is endangered. But for Earth, that's just like another moment in five billion's history. That it will it can be destroyed easily, but it will just grow it will just grew into another thing, another complexity, another diversity but we will we won't be there yeah that's 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 the only thing so that's that's the choice the the planet is staying the planet is stable the planet is like is for me the planet is like a nuclear reactor inside which is emitting heat and a beautiful star above which is also sending the heat in the form of light and life is something which is learning how to transform this energy of heat and light into something diverse and beautiful. And sometimes in the history of the planet, there were some of these these dead ends, evolutionary dead ends, which never gave uh, any of the results. And the whole branches of evolution died out. Like the dinosaurs are the good example. So... It's only for, like, if we talk about the consciousness, it's for us, it's a conscious decision what what we want to do. Do we want to be like the dinosaurs for some other species living on this planet, billion years after us? Or do we want to to grow, to be part of the trunk of the evolution and give more rise to, to more of the beautiful things possible on this planet?
0: Yeah, great. Yeah, I think that's a super important point that uh I think is <clears throat> important to emphasize which is this idea that that obviously we're human so we have a an anthropocentric worldview. but but much as you said like the world is always stable uh, it it can't not be stable and uh as you said it's just a, what kind of world do, do we want to create for us and and for those around us but but that ultimately that that the earth is fine um it also what you were talking about uh, it it reminded me of this very beautiful quote by by louis pasteur who was a a famous uh, um uh, french scientist and he he was really the one i mean that's where pasteurization comes from that this idea that that, that microbes are are harmful and that we have to eradicate them and and it also you know it, Kind of in a in a larger view, it it came from this kind of war on on nature. This this idea that we had to conquer nature and that we had to eradicate the the, the microbes because they could make us sick, and that's where this idea of pasteurization from comes from. Uh, but it was interesting because allegedly, on his deathbed, <clears throat> he had this quote, which uh, he was he was speaking to to a friend of his, and he he said something like that at the end of his life he realized that, that that the pathogen was nothing and the terrain was everything which is very much what you're you're speaking towards um you also mentioned this idea that in, in order to, you know for you and and your research to really understand the microbiome you you really had to look at traditional people um what is what is the difference when when you're studying kind of the traditional microbiome of traditional peoples versus what you see in in again you know for lack of better word words that the western world which you know isn't just europe and the u.s now it's really most of the world now kind of has a western diet so what are the what are the differences that you see in the microbiome and 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 what do you think are the the root causes of, of that change and and um and, and what do you see as as being maybe some of the detriment of that?
1: Yeah, just before before I would go there comparing the indigenous or like the traditional setting of the human microbe um community or like we call them holobiome. Like together with microbes, we are the whole universe, the holobiome of the human. That's also just to maybe uh, also somehow connected with the traditional approaches to health. That's uh, the view of many traditional cultures, and for sure South American a lot into that. It's very different from this Western view where we are separated from the nature. Now even in science, they discuss it that a lot of scientists now appear. Like for example, I've been reading a paper from the Maori guys. So these are the guys from Australia. They're typical tribal guys with this specific tattoos on the face. And they are now doing science. And they say that our way of thinking is really different. That we never thought of ourselves as something separate from the nature. The same is with the traditional South American approaches and probably a lot of medicine is about bringing this mindset back to people. That we are like, whenever you think of yourself as separate from the nature, you start to behave crazily yeah, and you harm your health. But whenever you like working with the mindset whenever you cure yourself into this state that you're part of this beautiful planet, then that's a healing. And then your choices and way of life are different. So whenever we compare um, a modern, more like modern people with the um, industrial diet and the traditional people, Uh, we can see that a lot of microbial species, they have disappeared. So, whenever, for example, let's say my ancestors were moving from the village to the city and then adopting the industrial way of eating, diet itself, they would lose a lot of different species, which are detrimentally important for health. And I call it for myself the theory of like the um, uh, industrial food filter of the microbes. So it's in a way, uh, and that's where where humanity is, is really going to, that the modern food is like a filter. And then, when whoever is coming with the indigenous richness of the microbes is passing through this filter, and only the microbes that can survive uh, with the environment of the modern food, they will stay when the human passes this filter. And they are not many, I would say, and they are not mo- like most of the beneficial microbes, they are not made into survival mode. They cannot survive, for example, food preservance. So, like sometimes you could imagine a modern milk, a cup of milk. If you leave it on the table, you go for vacation for a month, you come back and it will stay intact. You know, so this, this literally means that any of the microbes in the air, they're not touching this biological substance because it's full of something. We call it preservatives, yeah, like common words, so it's so we are trying to preserve food, but we never so this means that the microbes are not capable of eating this milk, for example, yeah they're not they they will be poisoned if they eat it, so whenever we take this food inside, it will act in the same way uh on our microbes, so that's kind of. Modern food, which is, which is made to be preserved for longer times, especially outside of the cold chain. You know, if something is just like staying on the table and it's not rotting, and it's something strange. This means that microbes, for some reason, are not eating that. But these are microbes outside, but the microbes inside will also not eat it. And then you can imagine that up to 100% of the diet could be made, could be made up of these types of the foods, yeah, this sometimes in also interesting with the uh, meat production facilities sometimes some time ago, they discovered that if we if we add a little bit of antibiotic into the farm farm animal, the farm animal would give more meat from the same amount of the feed. Yeah, so and if you're a businessman, that's a good thing. Yeah, for one kilo of the feed you will get more kilos of meat. The only thing you have to do is adding a little bit of antibiotics into that. But on the inner world, what's happening that you with the antibiotics, you are poisoning the microbes inside the animal, and then they are not able to digest, they're not taking extra energy from the feedstock, and the animal is getting fat. But these antibiotics are staying inside the meat, and whenever you give it to human, you will also poison them. You will also poison their microbes. And then if you look, for example, at US statistics, which is worldwide known, that's up to 30 and even higher rate of obesity in different states. So that's in a way, we wanted our animals to become bigger. But as a result, we are ourselves are getting bigger. So a lot of these practices at certain point, and sometimes some of these things for the Western world, I, I, I think of it as the, um, it's like really Karma karma stuff, which is like you treat the animals like this and this is what you get for your health or for example a lot of discussions now are about sugar Yeah, and the history of sugar is really a history of slavery we know the numbers that up to half of million of slaves transported from Africa they died just on the way they're over there in Atlantic Ocean and they were transported there because there was high demand for sugar which was sold as first in the drugstores for the highest prices. And now in our diet this sugar is like over the roof. Yeah, So probably every developed nation is consuming three to four times more added sugar than we just need for our normal daily energy expenses just because we like it just because it's addictive and then again for the whole western civilization i think that's just like karma guys our ancestors were killing for that were transforming the whole nations they were they were making slaves to have this sugar and now as a result we have again these obesity type 2 diabetes It's just, that's just the result. And that's, in karma, that's that's always like this, that you want to reach something, but the main advice that's just like, be careful with your wishes, yeah? Because sometimes they might come true. So we wanted more sugar. Now we got it, (laughs) but that's the result. That's something for our health. And then again, whenever it's about health, as the physical health, That's now always about health as the mental health. Can people with a chronic disease think clearly? Can they make their choices? How they feel emotionally? How they communicate? It's obviously uh, much harder for them to to have healthy relationships again. So again, when we look into these microbes, just comparing wild populations, and I've been above the uh, polar circle on the north. I've been living with the deer herders to see, and they have the same culture for last 2500 years. So we we can dig out their uh, traditional way of living from 2500 years, and it's almost similar to it now. And the food is almost similar, and their health is really good, like I was living with a guy of sixty five excellent health like he's like he's like a beer, like huge, very good eyesight, very good teeth, very good skin. He had like fifteen fifteen kids, for example, but the living conditions are so hard. That you can have encounter with the wild animals, you can get frozen, you can get whatever, you can get drowned and stuff. Half of these, of his kids, they didn't survive it. So it's in a way, nature is always selecting the fittest, the fittest, uh, subjects there. So whenever you get to the old age, this means that you are one of the like most adopted guys. And then again, in our Western world, we are due to medical uh, improvement. Yeah, we have all types of species with the disease and without the disease. This filter of the modern diseases is not working. Yeah, we are trying to make everybody survive up to certain age. So again, there will be most more fit people who live now up to hundred years and less fit people. Who live up to up to like the the medium age, be sixty five or seventy five. But it's what's 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 what was the most interesting for me. These were the cases of discovering that uh, some of the specific microbes are really important on different stages of life, and this is a lot what we see with the kids. There was a a guy in the 80s, he was an indigenous guy from Ecuador, but he he also got a good education and he was working for the pharmaceutical company. So he had this theory of um, that uh, breast milk is able to transport the microbes, very beneficial for the child. And this is part of kind of Mm, additional uh, education of the child microbial world from the mother. So at certain point when he went for vacation in Ecuador, he went up into the mountains and he collected the breast milk from indigenous mothers. He brought it to the lab, to his pharmaceutical lab, and he studied the milk. And he found a lot of specific microbes which are very good for children and then it's already 30 40 years now into the history of the product which is like very well known very well studied probiotic which is very good for kids and it, it is it appears to me that it was always that mothers would give this microbe to, to their children inside of the uh, breast milk and I was again checking the statistics for US the newborns in US only 5% of the newborns they have this specific microbe which guy have discovered in the indigenous milk so it's in a way um, how do you call it in English when Uh, parents are giving wife some of the treasures when she's married. A dowry. Huh?
0: It's called a dowry.
1: Dowry, yeah. So our Mm -hmm. microbes in a way is a dowry, but we're like really losing that. That's not given to us by our mothers or maybe even by our uh, grandmothers to our mothers. So whenever we return this to human wife, we're getting a better health results. Guys actually, and guys in this company who are producing these probiotics, they really understand this meaning of everything. The the guys, uh, the, um, uh, the probiotic is called BioGaia. So it's like really to make this tribute of this understanding of life. And there are other examples like that. So it's in a way when we transformed into the western civilization like living with the skyscrapers and supermarkets is something like really good and comfortable but it's also the way how we prepare the food how we store it the whole chain is a little bit corrupted yeah. that's one thing but also through my experience and I've been working in US, in Netherlands, in UK. A lot of my work is with the traditional food companies here in, in Russia and, and around. So now the mindset of food producers is changing also. So they understand that they want to preserve this even better, even more. Yeah, you know, like we understand that this type of manufacturing really uh influences health in a bad way. How can we make it better? Yeah, you know, like we and it's not only about wealth. It's not only about money. It's probably this process of waking up is happening globally with the food production. And they're really into researching, trying, experimenting how we can make the same food more nutritious for people. So that's, that's where, that's where I'm working at the moment also.
0: It seems like one of the, you mentioned this in the beginning that this idea of fermentation and, and in a lot of, uh, more of this Westernized or industrialized food production, that that seems to be something that's quite lost. And yet it, it very much, even in more European cultures, it, it, it it seemed to be one of the staples of diets even these things like beer which we we take for granted now um because even most beers are are pasteurized they're they're filtered um and yet traditionally th- th- there was this real art but but i but I think this also like inherent wisdom that this idea of fermentation was was very advantageous to health of of taking microbiomes that that were in our environments and uh, you know allowing those to transform foods and then and then ingesting those into our body. beer was a really common way or um you know things like sauerkrauts and um but but it seems like that's something that that that's really been lost um and, and many indigenous cultures also had that. Like you're mentioning, for example, in the Amazon. Uh, and it's something that's, that's really been lost now because a lot of, a lot of those groups are also moving away from some of those traditional processes. But, uh, for example, w- one of the main foodstuffs in the Amazon was, uh, was a plant called yuca or cassava. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of like a, a potato a bit thicker a bit heartier. Um and it was really a traditional food stuff and y- you could eat it you could make it kind of into a bread but the most common way that it was used was it was it was made into a liquid and then fermented and interestingly it was actually fermented by by women who would sit around and chew the yuca and then spit it um, you know, there's all sorts of jokes with that. Uh, you know, it depends on which women you, you know, which is the most attractive or who makes the best, uh, this drink, which <clears throat> it has many different names. Uh, one of the names is Masato. Um, but that was, you know, even when I spent time with, with a group of people who are still quite remote, they're, they're called the Matses, and they live between the Peruvian Amazon and the, the Brazilian Amazon. Um, and it can be made from yuca. It can also be made from these different palm fruits, like uh, pifayu, uh, ungarawi. <clears throat> which, but they're they're all kind of similar. They're very starchy uh, kind of fruits or, or vegetables. Um, but it's drunk with every meal. Every meal, you drink this fermented beverage. Um, kids drink it. Old people drink it. Everyone drinks it. Every meal, you drink this fermented beverage. Um, and it was also not just drunk like in a daily way, but it was also drunk in a ceremonial way. Like you would have ceremonies where you would drink massive amounts of this because it it is it has some alcohol, so you do need to drink a lot to really experience the the intoxicative uh, effects of it, um, but also. In a ritualistic sense, it was used too. So it, you know, it was seen as a food stuff. It was seen as a medicine. It was seen as something that could also transform consciousness. So it was a very fundamental part of their lives. And, and, you know, in, in Europe, it, it seems like, like beer kind of served that same function. And it was very commonly used. And it's something that we, we often drink now, but we seem to have kind of lost the the importance of it, or, or even the traditional knowledge of making it. Um, you know, like there's an example in, in, in Belgium, you have these Trappist monks, and they still make the beer in the traditional way. Um, and they also live off of that. I mean, that's like one of their main foodstuffs. And they're also, in general, quite healthy. Um, so is that something you can maybe talk about? Like just that idea of fermentation, why it's so important? And, that, and why that's in traditional amazing. Yeah.
1: yeah, That's amazing that you're touching this. And then again, whichever culture you would go into deeply, you would find these examples or traditional ways of making it. Then for the for the trapistas I know that there was this um, a specific kind of part of the season where the water was high from the melting snow and they would have these specific pools for the barley or oats, whatever which they were using for fermentation. They would put the water, the running water into there and it was kind of infecting or seeding the seeds which would be later made into the beers so there's like the whole cultural thing when you have to do it how you have to do it who can do it with which attitude again yeah you can produce this food this is again always part of the culture yeah it's like the whole ceremony of producing the foods with which attitude you need to chew this and then spit it out yeah that that you are making the feed for the tribe, for the health of the tribe and stuff like that. And I think that in many ways you can explain a lot with biochemistry, like why good thoughts would produce different milieu um, or something like that. With a, the with a trapistas and the beer, one of the things that we know that at certain points, this was the only source of a drinkable liquid in the ancient medieval cities, because the water was poisoned by the fecal stuff. Yeah? So because a little bit of alcohol inside of this uh, ancient beers, there was staying intact from infections. And this was the only source of, of drinkables, of something drinkable for life. Yeah? So you couldn't have water because a lot of infections were in there so it's and with the fermentation that's that's why people start to use it again and again because by creating specific acidity or by creating specific level of alcohol these bacteria and fungi they are able to preserve food away from infections yeah so this i would say that for all of the cultures the only the only explanation why fermentation stayed because this was the means of survival. Our ancestors, they were not making up something extra just because it's tasty. They were only taking these things because this allows us to survive. So it's in a way this start of interaction with microbes in forms of fermented food made us like really survive in different environments and stuff. So everything we know about um, Northern Europeans, that they were the first guys to uh, kind of adopt the milk making and the cows. And when we take this ancient pottery again, from dating from 5000 years BC, we would, we would see the first traces of fermentation inside the pottery. So they were fermenting milk and then again, cheese. Yeah. So, so this, like cheese was always like wealth. This was form of accumulating wealth. It's not the money. That's cheese. So that's again, that's the storage of milk fat for, for the times where you would have no food so and then again that's the whole history of fermentation this was all this was maybe for the, for, for the last hundred years uh, cheeses are something like delicious with certain smell and stuff but for the most history of cheese this was the means for survival this is why we could have these bigger, bigger growing populations because we learned how to preserve our harvest for a longer time for the winters where we have no plants, where we have no milk, stuff like that. So again, this this was like first approaches to biotechnology that humanity adopted. And this allowed humanity to survive in, in many areas. And I'm sure if you dig deeper, that would be the same for the Amazon. It's the only reason they're adopting these techniques because it's making them survive certain waves of changing climates, of infectious diseases, other stuff. So it's, that's really interesting. And then, for example, bread is a good example how industry changed the traditional approaches so the traditional bread is is whatever we call now the sourdough bread. It was always like this for hundreds of years up until maybe beginning or like end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. So you needed only flour, water and salt and you would create the conditions where the fermentation would start spontaneously from the microbes just living on the seed shells. And then together with the fungi, microbes were transforming flour into sugar. And then microbes were eating up sugar and making acids like the lactic acids or other acids. And the because of the CO2, the flour was getting bigger because of the gases. And then after 24 hours, we would put it inside the oven. The microbes would die for sure inside of the oven. But all of these acidic stuff would stay. And ancient or sourdough bread, it smells with acid, but it also stays for a long time. It could go dry, but if you then soak it up in water, it, it it would be good for eating again. So... When we discovered that there is this baker yeast, one of the microorganisms, the yeast, which is inside the bread, if we, it's actually somewhere around Louis Pasteur. These guys, they were like really taking everything into parts. That's again a Western approach of studying nature. Just like, let's disassemble that and let's see how different parts are working. So they discovered the baker's yeast and they realized if we grow a huge amount of this baker yeast, and then we put it into the flour, it would go, it would ferment the flour in one hour. That's very good for production, instead of 24 hours, to make bread rise in one hour. So we adopted this technique of just adding a lot of baker yeast in the beginning for the industrial production of bread, but since the process wasn't long enough, we weren't producing much acid. So the modern bread, the baker's yeast bread, the industrial bread is not protected by acidic environment. And if you leave it on the table, it could be covered with all of this infectious stuff. Uh, It could go blue, it could go green, something like that. Sometimes even in the shop packed in the plastic, I could see it's already kind of covered with the the, uh, microbial stuff and it's not good for eating so that's again an example how without understanding we tackled into traditional process and we changed the food which could be the medicine into the food like for example now if you ask people globally what do you think of bread they would say that's probably you should cut out the bread yeah because it's not good for your health it's making you fat But then again, if you're making the traditional, the sourdough bread, that could be 100% of your diet and that could be nutritious, that could be with a lot of minerals and that could be very good for your digestive health that could kind of really take you from suffering of intestinal problems into really a better health. Yeah, But you you just have to understand what you're doing. And that's with all of the foods... That's what we did, because all of the foods, like for example, chocolate. Yeah, we could hardly think that chocolate is something fermented, but when you are producing these cacao beans, before they turn into beans, you would put these cacao fruits into the um, digged out holes and they would ferment there. And only after that, you would have the smell and the taste inside the cacao beans. With coffee, it's the same, yeah, even on the coffee plantations. When it's steel with a, with a green peel around, yeah, that's when it's fermenting. With all of the milk products, that's fermented. Like, whatever you see now on the supermarket shelf, traditionally, this was done as fermented food. And then we somehow you know, started to make it just, like, much quicker, yeah, because we were, like, on the run the Western civilization is like, you you have no time, you have to run, you have to make it quicker, you have to make it more productive, more. Uh, you have to make more money out of that, out of the same way of the resources. That's how we turned a lot of the human culture of preparing foods together with the microbes. That's how we made it into the modern food, which is... Standard American diet. Now, uh, the acronym for that is SAD, Standard American Diet. So they call it SAD Food in a way. So that's where we are now. And a lot of, like, it's really interesting. It's really able just by talking to explain people, to change their attitude to food, to make it like, to make them like really turn into different directions to change their choices because in the end of the day you also have the choice. Yeah, whatever it's like to buy a cheaper foods, to buy something like already prepared, or spend some time into preparation.
0: So So (laughs) <laughs> Essentially, the the idea being for for physical health that, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, that this idea of of diversity in general is going to be superior to less diversity. So, these indigenous people they they were using these processes like fermentation. They they were getting food also in the wild, which was just probably naturally healthier, hardier. It was also involved in a, in a system of competition, much as you, you said, like with this guy in Finland, like only the strongest survive. And so also in nature, like only the strongest survive. <clears throat> and so this shift to more of an industrialized food where we're also not necessarily the strongest are surviving, like we're cultivating things. Uh, not necessarily for strength, but for looks or appearance or size, or you know much as you said with the cows, for uh, yielding higher quantities and so in general, that lack of diversity because we're we're kind of specializing and making things more and more refined um you know even like refined sugar it's 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 being refined you're you're taking a lot of things away from that final product. And then by doing that, you're getting a less diverse product in the end, which then makes you less diverse. Is is that kind of a a decent summary of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, and again, if you if you look and into a lot of stuff, that's how we came from um, medicine <clears throat> into poison. Yeah, take. I mean, I've been in Colombia, and they have the coca leaves as a traditional medicine which has its way of application when you have to do it in which amounts and sizes and stuff like that but you can also refine it into the crystal into the crystals and that's when it's becoming poison the sugar is, is again the same the same thing the sugar cane is a beautiful plant but when you refine into the sugar crystal that's becoming like a bit of a poison if you don't know how to do that so yeah that's I'm, I'm i'm really glad that you summarized it like that that's probably like um i was um i was really studying some of the views of the uh south american indians and i came i came about the book called waitiko so this is the way of thinking that there is this the waitiko is like a disease is like a virus traditionally south americans would say that someone inside of their tribe was going crazy was doing strange stuff and they would think that it's infected by this waitiko and this waitiko the description of that the traditional description of that was that you are starting to use and want more than you naturally need. That was more of this uh, description. But then it's really interesting when the traditional people, uh, the the indigenous American tribes, when they saw the westerners, the first westerners colonizing the continent, they realized that these guys, they're totally infected by this virus of m- wanting more than you actually need, yeah, they realize that this this is like the spread of this disease, so what you what you summarized what you described is our really hunt for more than we need. Yeah, if we look into the caloric intake, the probably the more the more we earn that's the curve which we see the more we earn, the more calories we eat. And in the developed, with the economically developed countries, we're actually consuming up to 70% more of our physical needs in terms of calories just because we can, just because we can afford it. That sounds like really crazy. We eat up up to 4,000 calories while we can burn, seizing on a chair, around 2,000 calories. And most of these additional calories, we call them empty calories. So these are in forms of alcohol and sweets. So it has no nutritional value, no vitamins, no minerals. That's just like sugar on sugar, sugar dissolved in water, that kind of stuff. And we only use it for pleasure of our sensory outputs or for some of the changes of our mood, for example. So this is again um, like the... Pro- and, and then again, the industry is using this desire of having more inside the human. So you can imagine two of the companies, Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, they were racing and creating drinks which would contain more and more sugar and people would choose the more sugary drink, then another company was producing more sugary drink, then another would produce more sugar drink. That's how we came into these amounts of sugar. But then again, like I think you have seen it so many times with people on the, on the dietas, dietas that's like really refusing the added sugar, refusing the um, processed food after a while you start to feel a lot of taste in the same food which weren't tasty for you because just your sensory inputs clears off just because there's a lot of sugar you don't feel the tiny sweet inputs from many other plants and food sources because just like it's over the roof
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I remember the the first dieta I I ever did, Um, and and at that time, you know, I I I was quite interested in nutrition. I I wasn't eating any refined sugar, but but I still wasn't aware. I think of of how much sugar is even added to food. I mean, even if you take something like you, you go to the supermarket and you buy a kombucha, which you know most people would think is quite healthy. The amount of added sugar that they're adding to that, you know, it can be like half of your daily recommended value of, of sugar just in one kombucha. It might have like 20 grams of sugar in it, you know, which is crazy. Um, but I remember that first dieta. It was the first time where I had literally cut everything out. And after two days, I was pacing around my, my, my tambo, my, my little hut, uh, like, Needing something sweet, I mean, I was literally like willing to like eat a, a a a block of wood if it contained any amount of sugar. Like that's that's how strong the the craving was. So it, it was very interesting. <clears throat> One of the things that that you uh, that you mentioned in the beginning about the the gut microbiome is is also how it affects the mood or our mind or intelligence, which, which seems like a field that, that more and more people are becoming aware of. And it was really interesting because, you know, you also use this word diversity, which is, you know, also interesting because it's become quite a catchword in in a lot of societies now, but, but it also, it, it reminded me that <clears throat> like, even in, in what we consider like Western European culture, we, we often trace those roots back to, to the Greeks. Um, but even, you know, you look at the Greeks and, and they really trace their roots back to the Egyptians, uh, and, you know, probably much before that is, is not even known now, but, But really that idea, even in like a Western educational system, was this idea of like a liberal arts education. And the idea behind that is that you have a diverse education. You know, like the Greek man, the the, the Renaissance man, the the educated man, was someone who worked on his body, was someone who took math, who took science, who took uh, astronomy, who took philosophy, who studied history. Like it was really this idea that in order to be intelligent, in in order to be whole – that one really needed a diversity of thought, that they needed to understand things from different perspectives. So it's quite interesting. And, you know, also when you're mentioning this idea that that a diverse microbiome also affects our, our mind, our thought, our intelligence. Um, so is that something you can speak more about? Because I, I think that's something that maybe some people are familiar with, but probably a lot of people not, That that actually our mind is also affected by by our by our health which is 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 determined by our microbiome as well
1: I and mean, this is this is like really emerging field at the moment in the whole science i was just like recently uh digging into the topic which is called neurodevelopmental windows so we know in terms of for example infant nut- nutrition that there are certain specific time slots in human growth from from the first 1000 days, which are very much important for specific functions of the brain. Learning, motor activity, memory, that kind of stuff. And we can explain it up to kind of biochemistry, again, of synapses. So now scientists try to connect it with what's happening in the infant gut, for example some of the processes because we we see a lot of like for example let's take an example of the c-section yeah that's up to 30% of the modern babies in the Western world are coming into the world by c-section techniques so they're not making their natural way through mother's vagina so they're not populated with the vaginal lactic acid bacteria so they're populated with skin bacteria and more often they will have asthma they will have different inflammatory diseases or they will go atopic but it's also what's discussed now the problem like because the brain and the gut are developing simultaneously at a certain point and whenever there is a problem in the development of the gut. will have the inflammation the brain will stop the development so just just by this we see the connection of the developing of the gut and developing of the brain so now again we see a lot of this information about the toxicity of the gut it's also in kids but it's also in the grown-ups for example our attitude to eating meat has changed a lot. There has never been in a history of the humankind that, that that there are subpopulations of people that eat so much animal protein. It's the whole industry now producing this animal protein. We eat it because it's like really let's say affordable and cheap, but it's also nutritious. It really kinda makes us not hungry and we can allow ourselves sometimes to eat meat three four times a day and also how we eat it normally it's not really kind of finely prepared we don't chew it enough so this excess of the protein is after 12 hours it's not digested and it's in our colon that's where microbial life is located. And then when microbes get a lot of animal protein, which hasn't been digested and absorbed by the small intestine, uh, the process happening with animal protein is called rotting. So it's rotting and it's producing toxic materials. And one of the uh, world-known scientists, Ilya Mechnikov, this is the guy from hundred years ago. He was studying. He's a he's a Nobel Prize winner, um, but he was also studying longevity, and he found out that his his postulate was that we are poisoning ourselves from the products of rotting, which comes from our own intestine. Hundreds of years hundred years after, with all of this modern technique, we understand that's that's true that's what he's discovered that's what's happening because excess of the protein the same it will happen on the table if you leave it it will rot the same happens in your intestine just because it's excess and in our intestines that's always a choice it will either if you have enough enough of food fiber if you have enough enough of plant food that will ferment and that will produce acidic state inside of the colon which is protective and it will produce a lot of acids which are good for our nutrition or it will rot and it will produce even neurotoxins which then will absorb which will destroy your liver which would make this effect which is now called in the medicine uh, a brain fog it's like your your thoughts are like milky you cannot make a choice it's hard to concentrate you forget the words it's like brain fog is is really a modern symptom so again this influence of what's happening with your food together with microbes this con- can also influence like that so you can produce toxins and this was this will influence your consciousness but the most interesting aspect is neurotransmitters so we understand that these between two of the synapses in this contact between of the two neurons the information is transferred with neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine are some of the famous normally we heard we heard of them yeah Most of the medicinal plants, they will work with the same receptors of the same neurotransmitters on the biochemical level. So like the altered states of consciousness, they're also created through this because some of the plant-based molecules, they, they really like these neurotransmitters for our neurons. So now we understand that bacteria in our bodies are really much involved into production and levels of these neurotransmitters. It's like serotonin whatever is like we understand that something that makes us happy, dopamine something which makes us really motivated and uh cutting edge of science now is for example the American company which came just from a startup 10 years ago. What they're doing now, they discovered in the feces of the healthy people, they discovered the microbe which is tremendously improving serotonin production inside of the gut. So it's not producing it per se, but when it's contacting the wall of the intestine, some specific cells and cells of the intestine, they start to produce more serotonin. So in the experiments, they are in the phase 2 trial, so very close, maybe 3 to 5 years to market, what they are showing, that uh, these microbe can be used as the painkiller and with certain patients that will work better than ketamine which is just a benchmark for the, for the pain-killing activity. So what they really state that for certain populations of people who have chronic pain, we can use microbe as a medicine, we will put it inside the human intestine, it will live there <coughs> and produce, in the interaction with the with cell wall, it will produce serotonin which would decrease the signal of the chronic pain and you don't need to take opioids for that as done in the US. So, I mean, that could be the whole revolution in the pharmaceutical industry if you think about that. But it's also interesting that probably it's another attitude to medicine, yeah? You don't have to take this medicine every day the microbe inside of you will be making this medicine for you every day yeah I, I it's maybe very hard to think of it commercially yeah because for the pharmaceutical company you are used to kind of selling it again and again for the firm like the pharmaceutical companies they really want you to be sick because this will make their financial success so here it will really change the attitude another maybe less known neurotransmitter is called GABA gamma aminobutyric acid that's um, something like soothing neurotransmitter like while serotonin and dopamine will increase the signal GABA will decrease the signal and normally it will make you more calm for example but now we understand that in specific populations like kids and early development or very old age and dementia GABA is tremendously important like if you will add GABA as a supplement which is there in the form of the supplement to kids with delays of uh, for example speaking it's a much higher chance that they will start speaking or if you will use GABA as a supplement for the old age, for somebody who has these initial stages of dementia, just forgetting words, like really hard to start remembering something, but not completely lost, then the symptoms will go away. And that's kind of science is there, and it's being used like that. It's They started in Japan in the 70s to use GABA for the old age, for example. But then again, GABA is produced inside of our body separately but also GABA is produced by any lactic acid bacteria just naturally. 60% of these lactic acid bacteria will produce it. Whenever you make a sauerkraut or whatever you're fermenting and you have lactic bacteria there, they will produce certain amount of GABA. So when there is a higher level of fermentation, like you make it like really acidic, their level of GABA they produce will grow, will increase. So it's probably part of our neurodevelopment as a kid's be attributed to very good acidic conditions in our gut. And the microbes who live there, they are kind of producing more and more of this GABA for us which we use in the regulation of learning activities as a kid. It's like really interesting. Yeah? It's like somewhere in the evolution, it came to be that the microbes were producing some of these neurotransmitters for us, which we started to use for our psychic activities, for our brain development. And now when we destroy it, with the, again with the modern techniques, we will see the decline in the in the mental health and one of the like the the most killing example that i saw is interaction of the breast milk microbe and uh, brain development in terms of chemical so the normal breast milk it would contain certain it's called oligosaccharides so these are sugars which are made up more from more than two sugars so there is this uh, lactose which is two sugars molecule like two different sugars but when there is three we call them oligosaccharides and these oligosaccharides is the third in terms of amount the third component of the breast milk and baby cannot absorb these oligosaccharides we have no enzymes to do anything with them so these oligosaccharides they are designated microbial food produced by mother and then transformed to kids so mother like the third element so like this fat and protein is for the baby and there's something for your microbes in every cup of the breast milk So we will go there and one of the elements of these oligosaccharides is called sialic acid. And the microbes would cleave this sialic acid and it will be absorbed by the baby and it will go directly into the brain like most of this sialic acid for the baby and for the developing brain goes inside of the brain. And then in the... Probably 20 years ago they did the research with the babies on the formula versus babies on the breast milk. And the amount of sialic acid in the breast milk babies was 30% more. So this way, this traditional kind of chain of feeding the baby is made in a way that you transport certain chemical in high amounts into the kid's brain. And this sialic acid, like these are two neurons, when they're contacted, this sialic acid is like really uh, lining up these contacts. And it's making, it's like in a way maybe uh, like insulation between two electric wires in a proper way so that the electrical signal comes, comes proper. And then again, if, if you think about that, that somewhere in the brain, A better connectivity of neurons is produced by the chemical which is transported from the mother's breast milk into the baby gut then cleaved off by the microbes in the baby gut and then through the blood is is transferred into the baby brain. This is like, wow, it's a really complex route of creating what we call intelligence then. And maybe to finish this topic, uh, whatever, whenever we work with the patients with all of these digestive symptoms, uh, we would see that one of the kind of accompanying symptom is an anxiety or an anxiety leading to depression. And we think that it's chiefly from really microbial disbalances, so whenever we improve the microbial disbalance, we can make the anxiety go away now i've I've been just recently uh, looking at the statistics for Europe, for example, so this post-pandemic time they they are seriously concerned by depression. And it's probably number one disabilitating reason now. It is bringing a lot of kind of, you can calculate it in billions. Yeah. How many working hours or working days people are losing because of the depression and anxiety and connected mental health states. So we understand that high rates of COVID patients in certain countries so the post-covid syndrome is always connected with more depressed like state where like you don't have the wish to wake up in the morning you you don't want to stay from the bed so that's again the neurotransmitters and then when we go to the reasons of it that the probably the most damaged organ from the covid is actually not the lungs this is your mucus, which is m- like the main amount of mucus is your intestine. So the virus is actually damaging the interface of your communication with your microbes. It was already not good communication because of the food. And then after the virus, that's even it's even worse. And we see these consequences a year or two after as the manifestation of disabilitating disease which is really attributed to mental health so that's probably the area and i've been talking a lot of with um, a lot of a lot about it with the professional guys who are doing fermentation who are teaching fermentation who are in this topic of food fermentation for years now and um, normally that's what they say that's our community of people who ferment also because that's a little bit again like a ceremony yeah you need to work with the with the plants from your garden you need to have the attitude when you're cooking that you're really putting time and effort and your mood into that and you're getting something which is really good for the health and they say this community of people fermenting from all over the world These people are much more calm. Like they would never kind of blow up uh, in the in the expressions or of anger or something like that. Like most of the time, you would have a better mood. Yeah, if you are like normally around bacteria and fermenting. So this is one of the side effects of making friends with microbes. Yeah, just like more more happy, like naturally a happier attitude. So what's happening?
0: Yeah, that's a good transition. I mean, we we are coming out of this <clears throat> kind of post-pandemic time where even people who maybe weren't so familiar with viruses now even that that word it's it, it's very prevalent with people. This idea that there are viruses that can affect us physically, mentally, um, even in, in the Amazon where I was for many years, it's it's probably the biggest cause of death uh worldwide uh, i'm guessing behind you know things like heart attacks and cancer but but is parasites and specifically like malaria i mean malaria kills i think hundreds of thousands of people every year um it's something that that in most of the western world is has kind of been eradicated that that specific parasite the the, the malarial uh parasite um but for much of the world that it's still very prevalent so is is that something you could speak a bit about just that idea of of viruses and parasites, and and how those kind of come into that idea of, of of the the microbiome.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's again part part of the bigger world. Yeah, that's this external world of uh, microbes, and um, through the history of humankind, we have all of this. Like really the Spain flu, for example, in Europe. It's a great example of like something like really new, which happened to people, new disease, new infection, which appeared and really killed a lot for South and Central America. This was like that that with the colonization, this population was not uh, prone to certain types of infectious diseases sexually transmitted non sexually transmitted diseases and a lot of indigenous people like the whole cultures died off because of the new infections brought by spanish conquistadors for example so that's 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 always been there i would say yeah that's not something like just modern that's with the plague for example it's always been there And the more we are, the bigger we are, the more dense we are in population, starting from the first cities, the more prone we are to certain infections. Yeah, like our world interconnectedness, our global logistics, which we were enjoying for several decades before the pandemic, has just showed us how much vulnerable we are in front of the virus. Yeah. In means of days, the infection which started somewhere spread globally and we couldn't control it. Just because we are so much interconnected. And this this has always been like this, but never up to these scales, yeah. Some of the diseases, malaria or tuberculosis stuff like that, they are connected with the kind of state of the environment outside, the level of living of the population, and I would say that probably malaria in a way, like how I see that, is formed by our mistreatment of the environment around so in a, if we would produce around ourselves beautiful gardens then malaria would be in control but because how we transform the nature it's probably we're not thinking about it so these hot spots for malaria they stay so it's of course i mean of course we should take action now we should use the specific uh, chemicals to protect from malaria, we should kill all of these insects which are trans- transporting malaria, but if we think like more globally that's just because how the nature looks that it's it's unbalanced and then we will see the result. In a balanced environment there is no chance for specific pathogen to appear in the high numbers starting from the medieval cities yeah there was just like a lot of waste yeah a lot of rats living off this waste which wasn't managed and this would allow the plague to kind of to 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 infect so many people so it's probably from the historic perspective that's that's always like that the the modern infections is just showing us from the from the perspective of nature they're just showing us the limits like the guys you are going over the limits and me nature i have the way to show you that it's too much one of the one of these examples was Uh, The swine flu, if you remember the times Uh, the swine flu. It actually appeared because on the farm there was so dense, the swine and the birds. They were living too dense, in very dirty conditions. And whenever it is like that, it is the home for new infections. It's where they're kind of cultivated and cultivated and cultivated and certain time they break out from these prisons so and it happened like it's, it's like because two different animals together in a very poor conditions in very poor health conditions then it is the condition where a new type of infection, a new type of virus, which is like which is a flu but of a new type, can appear, and it can like next time it appears, that could be many times more deadly. When people, whenever people say that somehow COVID was uh, made in a science lab, might think that it's like it's maybe you're trying to indulge what we do, how we make the industry like look at so many farming animals in such a poor conditions where the disease is uncontrollably spread between the animals and the sanitation conditions for them is really poor so these are sweet spots or hot spots for new infections to appear to develop and then from there to spread yeah it's 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 like really we're living on, on a powder barrel yeah sometimes we say it in our language like this with thought with 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 what we do with animals with what we do with waste for example with the organic waste again we're also doing like that so it's always I mean I mean, it's, it's good that locally we're fighting with that and making new drugs to treat that and making these drugs more accessible but more like global thinking about that is really changing the whole approach to the environment that we live in. And let's say we're now in 2023 by 2040, we are expecting a climate change and, it's, and this means that in many regions the temperature will be rising one, two or three degrees and then there are so many aspects of agriculture for example or forestation or access to water but one of the aspects we forget is the aspects of infections and microbes because two or three degrees higher temperature annually in certain places would really change the microbial landscape totally. So one or two or three degrees for microbes that's sometimes ability to multiplicate like thousands times faster. And this means that in different areas we will have different infections which were not known for this area. I don't know if you've been to Asia, but like Asian infections are really something dangerous for Western people. Yeah. So maybe if you were born locally, like for example, India, yeah, very hot climate, a lot of deadly infections. For, for human, but for the locals, there's the whole culture of eating, of treating, of surviving with that. And for example, like normal Indian can go and swim into Ganges. But you cannot imagine a Westerner to go and swim there. It's like literally after one 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 swim in Ganges, he will have a myriad of different parasites living on him. And he's unable to kind of fight with him. Every now and again, I have people from my friends who who says like, yeah, Dima, we've been to Asia. You've been warning us. That's not safe place for a long time, but we have this strange thing like I'm all yellow or I have this vomiting, I have this stuff. So that will come more into colder places. And it's like also together with the human migration because of the climate. People will migrate, we will have climatic immigrants. So people who are just like running from the devastating heat. And this also means that uh, infectious microbial landscape will change. And I'm I'm talking a lot on different occasions with the inside of the think tanks about like what should we do and the only thing we understand that we cannot even prepare for that we cannot precalculate the scenario we just have to be ready for action when it happens we we have to be ready to kind of st- to act early yeah we cannot even like think of what kind of drugs we need or what type of infection that will be we just have to be and ready to go when it happens. Yeah, we have to ready to we have to be ready to deal with that when it happens because it's the whole unknown world for humanity and I'm sure we will we all will experience that in the upcoming years. What we have learned from the COVID pandemic with all the statistics that people with better health And it's our normal understanding of better health, lower weight, lower blood sugar, better condition of the blood vessels, all of that stuff that we hear about every day, they have more chances for survival. And then again, coming back to the topic of diversity of the microbiome, they were comparing people and and they were seeing the outcomes of the covid The people with a better diversity of the microbiome, they had much better prognosis on the COVID. And the people with lower prognosis, older age, they were having worse, the worst prognosis with the COVID. That's uh, like time in the ICU or chances of death or like recovery time from the COVID. It's really interesting. So the only... uh, how do you call it, the only preventative measure that we can do is staying in a better health. And then again, the practical advice for the microbial diversity is just plant diversity. Just eat up a lot of different plants, like nuts and seeds and leaves and tubers and uh, berries and mushrooms and whatever vegetables themselves. That kind of stuff. Whenever you increase the diversity in the diet, the diversity inside of you will increase. Our ancestors, the hunter-gatherers, how we call them, they probably ate four to 500 different plant species a year. Through the year, all of this seasonal stuff. When I was observing different indigenous people in different areas, I realized that it's like, you know, from the childhood, they knew all of these different plants, not because they were taught by their parents, but just because they were trying all of that stuff from around. They were living inside the nature and they knew the taste. Like, this is bit, this one is bitter, this one is more sweet, this one you have to wait till it's yellow, then it's more soft. And it's like my own kids, when we go to the forest, they know certain types of Uh, leaves that they can chew and they just pick them up naturally without even thinking I think that our ancestors were like really living in nature like that they were like walking around in the nature and they were just like eating up different plants not much, not digging them off like some berries, some leaves sometimes even branch of a tree for chewing would, would suit them and that was their natural us in the Western world, in the Western city. You can imagine yourself walking somewhere on the London street and picking up a flower or a leaf because first of all, that will be covered with the, with the dust and dirt from the cars and that kind of stuff. So we are only eating off the shops, but, and then it's also our habitual attitude to the food that we want to make it more unified yeah for us the best solution would be the same food again and again because we don't have to think about it like naturally we are not into diversity on our table yeah that's that's the point so the habit to kind of to survive in the upcoming microbial madness you just have to put more more interest more attitude more time more consciousness on your dinner table for tonight to get more diverse stuff, more local stuff, to learn how to cook some of the stuff that would be the answer.
0: You you mentioned this really interesting idea in the beginning <clears throat> which when I when I started working with ayahuasca really came to me um because in a lot of these traditional cultures they they do speak of of entities of spirits and and there's also this idea of warfare that there's there's benevolent spirits there's malevolent spirits and that a big part of of work with medicine is bringing these things into balance or expelling the the malevolent spirits calling in the the benevolent spirits um and it's very interesting because you know as you were saying even kind of with, like, Pasteur and, and then some of those before him. You know, up until recent times, and like, even for a lot of Western people, that idea of spirits is very foreign. But even, a, you know, 100 years ago, <coughs> 200 years ago, that idea of microbes was a completely foreign uh worldview, cosmovision. I mean, if you told someone that there's these invisible things that you can't see with your eyes that are causing disease or benefiting you or enhancing your intelligence or making you depressed or causing you anxiety, people would have called you a, a charlatan, a quack. And yet when this, you know, instrument, the the microscope was developed, then you could actually see that these things were there. And, and I think it's a really acute and interesting observation that, that, that perhaps, you know, one of the ways of, of kind of translating that cosmovision of spirits or entities is that perhaps these people really were, you know, actually far ahead of their times, that they realized that there were these entities out there that we couldn't see, that we couldn't necessarily see with our eyes, but maybe through some other application, because they didn't have a, a, a microscope, but they had maybe a plant that could alter their consciousness that allowed them to see things, uh, that they were able to begin to to kind of work through these things, to bring harmony, to, to, to harmonize things in that way. Um, is there anything else you can speak about in that, or maybe things you you've thought about in that way? Um, you, you know, another really interesting thing that that I've thought about is even this idea of like alien intelligence, which is quite fascinating because just in terms of of the very like natural laws of physics of time and space. I mean, it's it's quite interesting, and it's something that I've thought of that that the nearest galaxy is something like ten thousand light years away. You know which is just an, an unfathomable distance almost insurmountable and yet with certain things like plants that, that do alter our consciousness those things like time and space begin to be dissolved and that we are able to enter a communion or an intelligence with with something else And and many people when they are in those states would say that they're communing they're they're having a conversation with an intelligence that's somehow outside of them or that may be inside of them as well but that's not inherently them that it's something other than them and yet they're learning they're receiving information they're receiving intelligence and i think even in that idea of aliens is like we often we anthropomorphize them like we we want to see them somehow as being somewhat similar to human and yet, we live on this Earth where there is this other life form, which potentially is highly intelligent, the, the microbial universe. Um, and there's, it's, it's, it's exuding life. I mean, we're surrounded by this almost like alien life that we know very, very little about, and yet it has such a huge impact on on our lives, and and even makes us who we are, which is quite fascinating as well.
1: Yeah, I mean. Um... I would say that my personal thoughts are about what actually consciousness is what's the what's the physical basis for con- for our consciousness, for example, very much we understand or like we have this theory that the brain and neuro- neurons connecting like myriads of these neurons like really complex network of neurons is creating something which we call consciousness. And then we can alter the functions of these neurons and we alter the functions of this consciousness. If when neurons die, we kind of lose this consciousness as we know it. So I was thinking a lot, is there anything beside the network of neurons which can also produce consciousness? And then there are a few examples in the world of stuff like that. So one of these examples is the uh like the network uh above, below 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 the earth. Yeah, if you look at the forest, there is the whole network of roots of different plants which They show now when somebody comes into the forest and steps onto the ground in one part of the forest, through the communication, the whole forest receives the information that there is somebody else in the forest. So this is like, but this communication is much, much slower. The speed of transmitting the signal is much, much slower than from neuron to neuron. Like in our neurons that's almost like light speed. So over there, because it's not only because it's not only electric signal, but it's mixed signal of chemistry, physical, sometimes electrical signal. So it's just slower. So in a way, Forrest has his consciousness in terms of like information flowing and changing about the whole thing happening in the forest but it's just like very slow thinking maybe few orders of magnitude slower but it has his memory it has his thoughts it has its expression so sometimes we would see that plants would connect to each other and help each other grow and heal and change And different, there are different stages of this forest. Yeah. Sometimes it would die or get old. Sometimes it would revive. It has the memory, a chemical memory of everything that happened with that. So, I mean, I'm like from the childhood, I'm very much attracted to the forests. Just like going there is, is a medicine for me. Uh, and then the microbes themselves, the community they seem to be communicating also, they have the memory, even the microbes in our gut, they will remember like we can find the chemical, the chemical memory of what's been happening with us from the very moment of our birth. And then they also store all the information of everything that happened to us and they communicate with each other and in a way they would have the same consciousness the, the same thoughts the same communication but again that would be just much slower so when you're mentioning this experiences of people of connecting with like seemingly other consciousness and also learning from them for me I would say that it's maybe less about some aliens or some another dimensions, but it's maybe our ability to connect with other consciousness of nature which have just different speeds or just different means of transmitting information, maybe not always electrical, sometimes through chemical, sometimes through physical connection, that's, that would be like really interesting for me maybe at some point to study. Whenever I was addressing this topic from scientific point of view, I was really understanding that's that we are not ready with the machinery to study. That's so much complex. It's like so much, so much complex that we can make just first experiments and first steps. But... That's amazing how we how we communicate also with the with the outer world that our probably our consciousness is never outside of the consciousness of the nature, especially with the indigenous people. Like these people, they live in the world of, for example, even fragrances. Yeah, like in the natural jungle, you would have all of this leaves evaporating. Like really healing fragrances, yeah, like substances which influence you. For the insects, these substances are really like controlling. They're changing their mating behavior. They are changing their direction, where they go and how it, it would transform. We are pro, I mean, it, it probably influences us as, influences us as well, but a little bit like subconsciously we're changing our behavior when we go into the forest into the jungle like we're like the way how we relax or like where i live we have pine trees and when it's midsummer sunny day you go into the pine tree forest it's like it's just 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 like a healing experience with all of the smells and fragrances yeah and that's for sure, I mean, you could subjectively feel that it's changing your consciousness. So in a way, we are always connected to this information from the nature. We should be always connected, yeah. We are designed to be always connected. That was guarding our survival again. That's why we are connected. That's means of the survival for us. The only thing we are doing now that we are now many generations of the people who live in the cities and a lot of kids they only know plants from the pictures yeah or like from the small gardens somewhere so we are like a little bit disconnected from the nature consciously but maybe on the subconscious level even this disconnection is even higher like we don't feel the natural fragrances of the plants from our area but we have all of these fumes of plastic and plastic and plastic again, and combustion, other stuff. so no no surprise, we're going crazy in a way, yeah, when we live in the cities, yeah, And then again, when we just go out in the healing environment of the nature, we're becoming connected to this. I mean, I'm all up to this Gaia theory. Like there is this global planetary consciousness as a layer of information. And me as a scientist, a lot of my a lot of my thought has been provoked by just staying with nature, just living there inside the nature, staying there for a for a longer time, even if you know there is this tradition of the vision quest, which is attributed to the like really ancient uh, tradition of the how do you call it rite of passage. Yeah, so it's like when the human is becoming older human how to initiate into the adult life different tribes would get different ceremonies but they were all about putting a young human into the wild nature and making him connect with the wild nature through the prayer, through the silence, whatever it was. I believe it was in every culture but a lot of cultures have just lost this understanding and then over there and it like the the staying there with nature was itself a medicine it was attenuating this level of more conscious understanding and subconscious understanding with the information from the nature and a human being would get a vision that's why it's called a vision quest would get a vision for a life or what you should do, so but it's it's a, a vision. What is a vision that's just like a well-informed decision? Yeah. So to to be well-informed, you need to connect to the global network of information, which is nature itself, through touching it, through seeing it, through just like putting your racing mind to a lower speed just to see what's happening. I remember my days on the mountain. I would, at certain point, I would know the time of the day because of the bees coming. They were buzzing from the far and I was like, oh, this is the time of the day when bees are coming close to me. And they would stay there for some time and they would go. And this was my experience of time. Not like something on my hand spinning all the time with a second after second, but it's like the flowing of the bees at their own speed, and this was my experience of time. Or I would wake up in the night and would see the moon moving uh, on the sky, and this was my experience of time during the night. So it's a little bit like much the consciousness of the planet or of different planets, subcommun planetary natural subcommunities like forests, microbes it definitely is there and we definitely have all of the receptors all of the capacities of really joining this of experiencing this but we need to be like a bit a bit better prepared for that we need to learn to observe it we need to learn to feel it and whenever we learn how to do it whenever we dedicate time whenever we have good teachers for that we will see more and more from there. We will experience more of this connection. And then I think part of our health is just insanity of being lonely and disconnected. But whenever, and then it's, it's again, it's so much inside the indigenous cultures, the, just the, the philosophy of indigenous culture that it has, It has never, that you are never alone, that you are part of the nature, that you are so much interwoven with every process of the nature, with changes of the seasons, with changes of the day, with all of the plants, with all of the insects, with all of the animals. And by return, like for us Western people, whenever we return to this attitude to nature, it's a healing experience, first of all, and, and it's transforming our way of thinking, experiencing, feeling, and I think that's how we are getting connected, like globally, consciously and subconsciously, to this Gaia experience. If we want to call it aliens, be it aliens, but I think that's just like it's just like more globally being more connected to life itself because our planet is rich, is, is a treasure of a planet, is life and is diversity. And we can definitely experience this. Sometimes just like this, uh, power plants can give us a push into that, but ultimately it's just our attention where we put it. If we put it into seeing more and more of this connection with the nature, it will just like flow naturally into our thoughts and consciousness up to the moment where definitely as well as true indigenous people we will they have no kind of limit where their consciousness end and the consciousness of the nature start it's just like one design one pattern one beauty for them in the everyday in the daily life and this makes them like really stable really robust in their mindset in their mind health but also in physical health i believe what do you think about that
0: works for you yeah i i think that's an amazing way of looking at things a lot of these cultures they 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 seem to have these traditional practices like like in japan they call it forest bathing kind of like you were talking about or this vision quest this initiation going into nature having this this experience with you mentioned in the beginning the the idea of the dieta which is you know very similar kind of going into nature isolation restricting not eating or, or fasting and ingesting these plants and kind of like as you talked about, like something like tobacco, the, the, again, this this fermentation process, how it affects the mucous me- membranes, how it goes into the the digestive system, it affects the microbiome, it goes into the liver, some of these plants like ayahuasca, you know, and, and even there's, there's been some research now about these ideas of neuroplasticity, of neurogenesis. Um, and very much like you're saying, you know, like traditionally they, they would speak about these ideas that, that these experiences, they, they allow you to see the world in a different way, which, which, which is where that idea of like the, this birth-death experience comes from or death-birth experience, that like you're dying to an old way of being, the initiatory experience, you're, the child is dying and being reborn as an adult or the kind of the power plant experience, you're, you're you're dying off to old ways of thinking, and you're you're stepping into a new vision. Um, maybe in more religious terms, it's like the the Maya. You're kind of cutting through the veil and seeing the world as it actually is. Do you, do you think these ideas of like neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, but because they are being studied by science, that there there's more of maybe an interest or or even a bridging of these worlds and and seeing that that actually you know, al- almost in language that they are speaking about very similar things and, and, and that they're real in a way, that they have a very, a very real impact that can be seen and measured.
1: Well, I, I mean, the, the studies of the brain, which are, which are there now in modern science, are really important for our understanding of how our psychic is working. And the very basic understanding for me is this connection of trauma and neuroplasticity. Because trauma in itself, in terms of the brain, that's a conditional like a reflex, like a reaction, which is, it's called even sometimes, it's called engraving. So it's like engraved in your brain, this reaction. So something bad happened to you, from a person who was wearing a bird and a yellow sweater so you will react to everything with a beard and a yellow sweater as very dangerous because that's a way of survival so trauma is all of your conditional reflexes for all of the traumatic experience in your life and sometimes for the adult person there's so many traumas yeah, sometimes they're not life life death related. sometimes that's because we are in society and most dangerous for us is this social social death yeah social attitude, social trauma we can make trauma in people with words yeah that's that's how how extensive we are. that's how far we are from this natural stuff. So a person with all of this traumatic experience, it's hard for him to move freely. Yeah, it's hard for him to think freely because whenever he goes, he bounces another trauma and he's like this, in this inside of this pinball machine. He's just like bouncing of different traumas with his thoughts. And he's, that's, that's where we also say that the mind is racing. It's just racing because it cannot go out. Yeah, it goes there, it's like, no, that's that's dangerous, this I cannot do, like, this is this painful. So in terms of the brain, yeah, when we start thinking of something, there is this connection with the within the very internal parts of the brain, like very, very internal, like this is our frontal lobes, yeah, and this is like very internal parts of the brain, like sometimes we call it the lizard brain, which is, like fight freeze and run reactions yeah so we see if we would look at the at the brain of a normal person with a trauma like or like a normal adult a western adult there's always some traumatic experience lightens and it will cause a reaction so a neuroplasticity a meditation psychotherapy just living through your trauma what it creates that from the um, frontal lobes from the conscious thinking you will have the neurons growing into this traumatic localization and the trauma will, will again will light every time you will see the conditions close to those traumatic but because you work through that and you have the connection from the frontal part of your conscious mind, it will kind of extinguish the trauma with the neurotransmitters, it will soothe the trauma momentarily, like it's okay, you're grown up, that's not that bad guy with a beard and yellow sweater, that's just like yellow sweater, a lot of yellow things over there. So in a way the neuroplasticity is rewiring, we call this like really like changing the wires, rewiring your brain for different reactions. But in a way, the traumas will always stay with you, but you just react to them differently. It will always, the traumatic experience will always appear when you have it, according to the normal, neuro, like the modern neuroscience. You cannot erase it, but there are so many connections to the same region which will soothe it, that you don't experience it as trauma anymore. Or you can even transform this energy, because that's that's the mind energy, when something lights inside your brain, that's the energy. You can even transform it into whatever, pieces of art, motivation, that kind of stuff. So it's, it will it will light up the whole circles of something moving inside your brain and you will have all of this yellow world or you will become a um, barber which cuts the beards, yeah. Some, some Somehow it started with some of the trauma, but where it will lead you, normally we try to kind of squeeze this trauma, not think about it, not go there because it's traumatic, Yeah, we try to avoid it. And then we have special, uh, how do you call them, uh, the special chemicals, from from different lists, yeah, which help us to forget about the trauma when we get intoxicated, yeah, with alcohol or something else, yeah, it's like, that's our way of working with trauma. That's, that's the normal way of working with trauma, just being intoxicated enough that we don't remember what the yellow is. <laughs> no, we don't react to that. So that's another, like neuroplasticity in working through that, that's another way, and here, <laughs> um i think that working with plants or just creating your health good enough to be able for this neuroplasticity that's like additional therapy adjuvant therapy we call it so this will work in synergy with what's happening in your life yeah again you can work through that yourself you can use psychotherapy you can use different 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 professions of people now there like facilitators who help you live through that with different with different techniques there are some traditional techniques like meditation which is also so much connected with uh healing the trauma and neuroplasticity. That's what we see with all of these Buddhist monks, that their brains are rewiring even in the old age. Yeah, they have these capacities because for a long time we thought that probably after 2025, brain is not changing much. It's only dying off. No, it's it's ever living matter inside of this box and it can change if we want and we can help. And our good health, like our good and diverse biochemistry helps us to work with this brain better, it has more energy, It's I mean, all of these different experiences, even now, that we've been talking now for two, two and a half hours, I see, yeah, but I also can compare my state from before and now. That's like, just because of thinking about or talking about something, I can I can feel more energy in the body, more energy in the mind, more different thoughts, like I, I'm revisiting some of my old ideas, some of like, this is life of the brain. And then this is again, what we feed to our brain is important because the brain also has his own food. And he's, it's uh, in, in the United States, there is this concept of integrative medicine or integrative approach to health. So, all of the food that physical food that we eat is called secondary food. And the primary food is all of our vision, all of our sounds that we hear, all the ideas that we see, the sceneries that we visit, the people we communicate with. So, this is our primary food. This is, and depending on our primary food, the brain will work accordingly. Yeah. So, we can. And this is this is what we consciously regulate, where we live, with whom we talk, what topics do we do we touch. And even if we are we are in a situation where it's seemingly we are unable to change what we see every day, but it's also our attitude that we can change to so that. We can see different details we can pay attention to different details and we can choose or regulate our reactions to those details this is this is how i see this rich life of consciousness connected with brain and neuroplasticity and brain development one of the interesting topics now in neuroscience is about kind of connecting different parts of the brain together. So it's interconnectivity of the brain. So it's like brain can be more interconnected and more whole or can be can be less interconnected. So a lot of practices, for example, like a lot of the spiritual practices, they show that we are building more and more interconnections with different parts of the brain. Loosely connected parts of the brain can even cause this effect of multiple personalities in the same person, which is like more obvious, close to madness and mental disease. A lot of physical activity when we are, so it's, it's like really interesting, this part of the brain which is connecting other parts, that's like the brain stem, let's call it, and it's bigger and wider, And it's more thick, and it's more connecting other parts with people who do meditation, for example, or with people who really do something conscious with their body, like elite athletes or people who do bodily practices, who learn how to control their movements, like in the Qigong, for example. It's also like interconnecting your brain. And, and for me, this is like a concept of being more whole as a person, yeah, of like making sense of all of your experiences in life, of everything that happened, not putting it into the black box somewhere in the, whatever, cupboard of, of your life, yeah. know, all of your skeletons in your cupboard, yeah, just like really making friends with them, making sense of that, putting it all together. This is this is a like you are becoming yourself a more interesting person for yourself and others for communication with the world when you you are more whole yeah we, this is again this is what we say that the person is more complete he is integrated that's what that's how we call it a yeah? phase of integration of the experience in one piece and on the physical level of the brain structures we also see the same thing And very important that it's not connected with age. (coughs) That we can start doing and we should continue doing it through the whole lifetime. Putting it together, together, together. I work with clay a little bit. And there is this first stage of working with clay that you need to kind of let the air out. And you really need to work with that. So it's... This is I always imagine that's my brain that I need to massage it all of the time to make it more like to to create a better shape after yeah I have to really put it put it together you know, like r- really make it soft like really make it work otherwise when it's kind of stalling when it's not moving, this is where probably problems start yeah this is where you where you get stuck in certain experiences, life conditions, that kind of stuff. I mean, there is no way we can <laughs> probably secure us from different life conditions and things happening, especially when the world is becoming more and more turbulent. The only thing we can do is making is make us more adaptive to that in terms of physical and mental health, That's that's for sure. That's what I think you are doing with this podcast here
0: you you wrote a book a, a children's book is that something you can speak a little bit about and one of the things that that i saw in the kind of the the description of it which i think is really important and also that we forget i think sometimes in, in a lot of our cultures is this idea that the highest form of intelligence is that when you can when you can relay something to a child you know that that's true mastery over it and I think in a lot of our cultures we we've really forgotten that and um and there, there's something very not only noble but important about just education and, and children and passing things down and and also this idea of, of intelligence initiation you know a lot of the things we we're actually talking about
1: yeah for me this was probably one of the life-changing events uh, when we started to i mean it just came it just came out of the blue um, I was already uh, like a renowned scientist in the field of microbiome. And then there was this idea that probably we can write a book for kids. We have like friends who can create the ideas, what we should talk about. me, it was me and my um, friend from the childhood we were working together. His wife was really good uh, painter, artist who could create all of the kind of cartoon stuff around, and another friend who was good with the literature. She was helping us to put it into story. And this was so easy to create. This was amazing. We were just like fountain of different ideas, what we should tell kids about, what's the earth, how microbes appeared, what they're doing in different parts of our body. This was like... And we, were, and we were also having fun doing that. Like, okay, in the end we had a rap battle between good and bad microbes who were like really, like, really rap. And who's the best rapper wins, wins the intestine, that kind of stuff. So it was just like a lot of fun. And when the book came out, I realized that this can be the effect, I think, worldwide. We are somewhere, maybe 50 to 60,000 books. Uh, in different languages, I think it's English. I know that we did Spanish translation, but it never get published. But we have a book on Amazon, it's called Team's Adventure in the World of Microbes. I think we had it somewhere in Eastern Europe and even in China. And then we started to get feedback from kids and parents. And I was getting a lot of these videos where a child was just, like, together with a book all the time, putting it under the pillow, that kind of stuff. One of the parents wrote us, like, you know, after your book, uh, our kid doesn't want, like, for the New Year gift, for the Christmas gift, he doesn't want Sony PlayStation, he wants a microscope. And this was, like, for me, it was, like, wow. Like, that was fun writing it. But now, what's happening with the kids? And I re and I, this is like really what I realized that kids somehow they have this uh, built-in radar. They understand when somebody growing up is like really genuine in how they explain something. And I believe that kids are able to kind of see the fun that we were having telling the things, or like the simplicity, or the beauty, or how we worked on the pictures. The concepts are really simple, yeah, so good microbes are microbes that are eating vegetables, bad microbes are microbes that are eating sugars and sweets and stuff and sometimes uh, parents would write that like the, the book for my kid the book is working like a hypnosis because he threw away all of the candies and he's insisting that we that he needs to eat more vegetables now because inside of him are good bacteria and he doesn't want to get sick if his wets if his feet are wet next time in the street something like that so it's like really building logical connections from your food through your microbes to how you feel, that kind of stuff. So this, I mean, the, the whole experience started the whole area of my activity. And now here back, back at home in Russia, I'm probably one of the top 10 science communicators. So I'm pop, pop, popularization of scientific thoughts on aging, microbes, nutrition, this made me. This connected me to so many great minds in the industry of food, for example, through their kids. Again, they were like, "Wow, we we wrote your we, we read your book for the kids. It's an amazing book, by the way. Like, we are also thinking of making like more healthier snacks. Do you want to advise us? Do you, can you work with us on that? Can we can we make it even better than our initial idea?" so this was this was like really something probably which had to happen to me one day and it just happened and it's part of my part of my really like a daily life and probably every now and again i would visit a school or a kindergarten and work with kids on the the topic of microbes. Normally I make it in a way of a seminar, like a scientific seminar. I really encourage and empower them. I say that we're now all scientists and we have some of the ideas to discuss and you will be able to kind of shout out your hypothesis, your ideas, what you think about that, how this might work, that kind of stuff. So I start talking to kids like really with a lot of dignity and really giving them credit, like all of their crazy ideas can be there, that's called science and that's called scientific hypothesis, we will put all of them on the on the blackboard and then later we will discuss and also one of the things that I realized and one of the things whenever parents are there watching what's happening, I, first of all, <laughs> when I ask kids, Very often parents try to answer. (laughs) And and I'm just like asking, guys, just watch what you're doing. You're doing this all the time in, in the daily life with your kids. But just give them time to answer. They know everything. You don't need to show that your kids know this topic the best. Just let them speak freely. And in the end, parents would see that kids are smart in their own way. They're smart in the way how they can process the information and think about it and how together like a group of 10 kids can come up to very beautiful ideas like everybody knows a little bit like everybody could add up to the collective idea the final goal where we are going to and it's really interesting that's another way also of teaching because i don't give them information to to memorize, I ask them question and we're discussing which of the hypotheses do you think will work better, which looks more like the truth, something like that. And I realized then when you give kids a chance to come up with their own ideas, they will use these ideas much better. Yeah, they will stick to them in terms of principles of their own health just because it's their ideas. Yeah, that's probably why we all have a lot of this information about how to live healthy. Yeah, Like Apple a day keeps a doctor away. A lot of this different information, but it's not ours. That's not our invention. We just heard it and that's like outer informational buzz. But if you are able to create a learning environment where somebody discovers something and... That's probably something again which is happening in the ceremony with the grown-up people in the healing ceremony. They come up with their own ideas about their own life. That's why it's also working much better than them working with a psychotherapist who will interpret something for them. But this is like our own insight, our own aha moment about processing stuff. So for like every 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 time after spending 2 to 3 hours with kids i come up so much myself me myself i appear so much recharged because they are in a way they're so much easy to communicate than the grown ups they don't have so many stiff ideas and garbage they're momentarily into the topic they're genuinely interested yeah they're like like really into that and it's like to three hours of like intense just like work and communication around the topic if you manage to kind of create this environment that would be amazing and that's again that's another way of healing for me it's just like going out and staying with kids and even i i started working with kids much much before i had my own kids and now it's always with my own kids, like two to three hours, just diving into their world again. This, like totally recharging myself, totally reloading the software. Like you're, you're a new person after that, because because you also. This is again how brain is working. Yeah, it's it's always uh with a with a mirror neurons. That's one of the modern understanding with the kinesiotherapy with the work of the mirror neurons we are mimicking the mimic our micro mimic will read the guy in front of us and we will create the same facial expressions a little bit like the person in front of us and when we are with a stressed out grown-ups most part of the day in like in the daily city environment then of course we have empathy for them but also we accumulate this brain images of really sad uh, anxious people but if you go out with kids who are just like happy yeah then in a way you're reading these micro things of happiness and you're recharging your brain with this stimulus of just genine happiness, joy of life, just because it is there, something new. Let's dig into that. Let's put it into parts. Let's assemble that again. It's and I mean in terms of health, if you think about it, kids is just a bunch of new cells which have not accumulated toxicity. That's very fresh brain with not so many traumas and is experiencing life as kid experiences it is like really teaching you something about what's real health, yeah. I believe that we don't get a that we don't get old, yeah, that we're just like accumulating a lot of toxic stuff on the cellular and mental level. And other I mean, otherwise we would be just like running around twenty four seven, enjoying life, studying something new, finding out, like like really this surprise about everything like wow that's a new whatever I don't know stuff something new how it works oh, no, you can unscrew that and screw that up wow like this is and this is so genuine from their side this is this is what I'm learning from them and that's I think that also on the cultural and or like a conscious level that's part of the part of the nature that we as a humanity, we will be extended in next generations of our kids as well as we are extension of our ancestors. And they all, like our ancestors, they had their prayers. And that prayers that wish for a better life for the next generation has really created a world that we live in And in many ways, let's say, it's a better world. They were trying to make it better. They were trying to make a better condition. So I see that as one of the like inherent mission. It's a part of the consciousness the same way as a tree is producing a seed in it also inside the fruit which is like ripen and is made that the seed will grow into a next tree in a way this is the same process of replication of things happening again and again like a cycle of life that will happen at, like this life tree is something like a good a good uh, image of that that we have the roots but we also have, like, we are at the moment, we are the trunk. You know, we as generation, in you know, our, like when we are parents, we are the trunk. Or even if we don't have the kids, the kids are always around us. We are the trunk. We are capable of doing stuff. But there are also branches and there are trees and seeds and fruits. And also, it's like, I think it's part of a natural consciousness that we've been talking before. And this question so much connects with that, that it's probably impossible yeah, to live without this connection to the kids because it looks insane, it looks unnatural. It's beyond the natural understanding of life, beyond this change of generation. And yeah i i i feel i have to stop now
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. well beautiful Dima. um maybe to to begin to wrap things up um <clears throat> do you have any recommendations or or resources uh, if if people are interested in in kind of building a, a more diverse microbiome like how how would they how how would they go about doing that
1: Uh-oh. well i think that um there is a lot of uh, popular literature in English that you can get access to or in any of the languages. I would definitely recommend just just going and getting grip of the things over there. Um, a lot of uh, these TED talks, for example, there are a lot of very good TED talks on microbiome that you can learn if you're interested whenever you go people will again and again talk about the same stuff again and again and it doesn't matter who will reproduce it in terms of information that the microbiome is there that there are parts of food which really poison the microbiome and there is the plant-based food the fiber the food fiber which is the food for the microbiome this normal recommendation of eating more vegetables, like five portions of vegetables, that's the equivalent of uh, amount of fiber from the five portions of vegetables that you need to get every day. And if you get it enough, you will get a regular stool, like an everyday stool. That's the whole diagnostic. You look what's on your plate. Is it diverse enough? Do you have 30 to 50 plants every week? Do you have rainbow color on the plate, you eat it up, do you have the regular, the normal stool, which is not liquid, which is not like hard and it doesn't work and constipation. If it's working for you, then you're like, okay, basics of microbiome is is done for you. Then you can go further and you can look into different external bacteria, which will help you inside, This can be either in terms of probiotics, which is kind of pharmaceutically produced microbes, but they're mostly extracted from human or different plants. Or you can look at the fermented food, you can find a local producer, like some very good project I was working in Berlin with, are guys called Ferment. So it's like ferment, but with the word playing around the world, the word fair and they started as a garage uh, doing kombucha, doing uh, yeast um, as a supplement or producing the kefir grains and spreading them. But from the very beginning they, I think it's up to 30% of the people working there are people with, um, I don't know what's the proper word not to be politically incorrect with different health disabilities with different limitations uh, and that's why they call it fair and you can get everything from them with a fair price so again you can buy already prepared kombucha without sugar without added sugar importantly <laughs> yeah so that's that's the, the taste of the kombucha. Uh, or you can get this uh, kombucha-producing mushroom, we call it, yeah, kombucha-producing substance and produce it yourself, yeah, that's that's also good. And they were, like, I was coming to them annually for several years and the production was growing because people were supporting the whole idea that this is, like, very... Um, very good business in itself and i know a lot of entrepreneurs in different countries who are starting these businesses working with uh, fermented products sourdough bread i mean if you for the for the listeners for our audience if you haven't tried it or if it's not your regular basis just try to find a baker and now it's like in most places you can find that Get to know it, yeah, just getting to know your food, who is growing that, who is baking that that's also so much important because, like with one of the um, with one of the medicine people, uh I remember I was talking with one of the medicine people, and that's what he said. He said that if you know who grew the plant, how it got to you, with what attitude the whole chain. Of medicine coming to you and how to use it and the reason to use it and the way to use it and the ceremony to use it, then it's a medicine. But if you don't know, then it's just like a recreational drug. And this is the whole difference. And the same will be about food. The same will be about food. Food can be a medicine, but if you know how it appeared, Who is producing? Who are these people? What's their attitude? What's their thoughts when they're getting the 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 crop, the harvest? Yeah, who is transforming this? Who is bringing that? Like, if you if you really if you are really more attentive to this chain, which is bringing food to your table, like really from 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 farm to fork, the concept. If you're really get into that and see more into that then your food is transforming more and more into medicine because otherwise that's just like pre-packed something which you throw into the micro-oven and then you eat it while driving to the office that's probably not the medicine at all that's that's the the worst way how to do that I was recently on the interview with a priest and we touched the base of this topic of putting a prayer into the food before you would actually eat that which is there in traditional cultures all over the world and from the point of view of the physiology and digestive system while you are slowing yourself down you're actually switching your nervous system from the fight-flight mode into resting mode which is totally different in terms which works totally different in terms of digestion and the same amount of food you will eat with a slower speed and you will get much more for your health a lot of food that we are eating like while watching the well binge watching uh, the uh, the tv shows that we just like our body doesn't even understand what happened yeah it's like what was it food or was it what should we digest it or should we kind of throw it away that kind of stuff so a little bit more consciousness and attention in every step will make your food into the medicine and there is a lot of information about that there and there are so many people around i would definitely recommend finding a live person not the online person to get into that maybe also to learn how to make certain foods that's not and that's not that's not rocket science at all yeah you just need vegetable water and salt and your own hands that's enough for creating fermented food which will be there in two to three days and then that's the whole. That's the whole journey. That's how our grand grandmothers, for sure, and maybe sometimes grandmothers were were working with foods day and night. That's amazing connection to the human culture of cooking and and a sustainable health.
0: Yeah, great. Well Dima, this was amazing. Are, are are there any um subjects that we didn't touch on that you'd like to, to talk about before we wrap up?
1: I think I think um I've been I I've been here and there, everywhere mostly. That was that was amazing uh company, though though it's online, yeah. You're a good listener and you're really guiding into the into the spots where it was really interesting to talk to. And it's also like, you know, for me, uh, from, from our conversation almost into three hours now, this is like really understanding how the science and tradition and modern and ancient can and should be connected with different people around the globe, that we should really bring it together and make sense of it because that's that's the main that's the main effort. Like really put it together into one piece more and more, not making it like a total soup of it, yeah, not mix it in a ways that is unmixable, but also like making sense. And from whichever side in this conversation we were approaching the topic, that really made sense and one one topic could flow into another that was amazing experience for me to talk on so many different stuff but really coming back into the to the one to the one root to the one core
0: there's a beautiful prophecy uh, from a group of people in the Colombian Amazon <clears throat> and they say this is the time of uh, of the the amasa the, the which they kind of translate as the the children of the new dawn and they say we're in a time of <clears throat> of people who can really take the medicine of the four directions to to create a a, a new maloka, which is like a new earth, a, a new way of being. Um, and yeah, that's that. You know, as you were kind of saying before we started, that's that's a big part of this podcast, which is really to to speak to people like you who are, who are doing that and and to to bring these different medicines together because, you know, at the root medicine is medicine. It's, it's not bound by time or space or culture, but it's really, um, you know, it's been said very beautifully, like truth is one and paths are many. So how do we, how do we take all this knowledge that's out there and really, um, create something new and beautiful with it, you know, based on tradition, based on science, based on, on, on knowledge. So. I thank you very much for your part uh, in doing that. I, I think you're doing uh, <clears throat> beautiful work and, and, and super important work and, and work that's really needed. Um, and, and that really is, uh, going to help to, to, to change the world. Um, you know, person by person and, and culture by culture. If, if people are interested in, I don't know, reaching out to you or, or, or reading your book, um, are, are there ways they can, uh, best ways they can, you know, get access to that book or any other resources that you have or, or, or contacts? Uh,
1: yeah, I think we can leave it under the, the mm-hmm. video. Yeah, some of the links to the, to the kids book in English. I think it's still on Amazon. I'm not really connected to publisher now. Yeah, and you can have my Telegram connect whenever you have some of the ideas. Sometimes the beautiful thing about the interviews like that, there will be people like really wishing to reach out with certain questions or ideas and like more and more of the beautiful communications come after that. I will definitely send this video to a lot of, food guys in UK i was working with so it's like really warm greetings to those guys like in UK the whole culture of creating new fermented food is was was really booming when i was living in london before the pandemic and i think it's still there and it's really growing it's amazing how it's transforming the whole attitude to healthcare, like there are so many people who really don't want to get into the healthcare system and they understand that they can do that with their food. And this is this is like really great, great thing that food can be the medicine. It, it is already there. It's already there with the people who do that.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you, my friend. this This was a pleasure, and uh, and another shout out to uh, to Sophia for for bridging yeah, that introduction. Yeah, I hope we see and, and when you shutting... come to travel.
1: <laughs> that would be amazing.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, wonderful. Well, I hope to meet you in person, and and I think that will happen. and uh, And I wish you all the best, and and thank you so much again for this interview. It's it's really yeah, been a pleasure, thank you. Gama.
1: Thank you, Jason.
0: All right, everyone, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. Uh, It was beautiful to sit down and talk to him. I think we got into some really fascinating topics, and I hope you enjoyed those. Um, As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. Uh, You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, Um, and the different tiers you can sign up for give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. As As always, to all the patrons, to all the people support, that way thank you very much for your help I really appreciate it and if you're able to do that thank you very much in advance um Also, if you're able to help with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience, uh, spreading it via word of mouth, uh, or if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, uh, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help. Uh, And then with the audio versions on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, following the show, leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a really big help. I should have some uh, interesting guests, hopefully, as always, coming on. Uh, I'm trying to arrange an interview with a local Cardo guy named Victor. it It's been a little uh, challenging getting that lined up, but hopefully that will come up. Uh, there's a woman... Who I'm going to interview in a couple weeks named Kat Courtney who has a really uh, wonderful uh, practice website Instagram channel called Plant Medicine People uh, so she'll be coming on uh, and then also another woman named Leela Lieberman uh, who's done some really beautiful work on um, traditional healing cultures, um, traditional shamanic cultures and, and speaking about that so uh, those are the next guests I have lined up um, as always thank you all for all of your support I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you all for tuning in and I will see you all on the next episode.